Hello and welcome to Infinite Machine Learning. This is your host Pratik Joshi and the goal of this podcast is to talk to amazing leaders in machine learning and find out how they built their careers. Today we have Tom Ives. Thanks to Dennis Rothman for making the connection. Tom is the founder of Integrated Machine Learning and AI providing services and instruction in the data science community. And he is the lead data scientist at AI Strategy Corporation. He is the recipient of more than 25 US patents for many types of devices. He has a PhD in mechanical engineering and has over 47,000 followers on LinkedIn. He has built an amazing career over the last 30 years. So let's dive in. Tom, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's great to be here, Pratik. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Uh, I want to start at the beginning. Uh, How did you make your way into AI? Well, I think it was always there in a way. Um, When I I consider AI, I think just automating things. And I don't mean to trivialize it, but a lot of times that's the the biggest part of it. So... um, you know, just to date myself, my first programming class was with Fortran and punch cards. Mm-hmm. And thank God they were just exposing us to them because that same <laughs> semester, I was able to move to computer terminals to a mainframe. And it was very nice. And But I fell in love with predictive modeling and Fortran. And uh, that's what we had when I was an undergrad. So going from that to... Uh... Like today, is there so many tools and techniques being developed? Um, it's been it's been quite <laughs> quite a journey. Now, you know, you have around forty seven thousand followers on LinkedIn. It's growing rapidly, and you know, there's almost like a community forming uh, around what you what you post. So, what's your framework around creating good, useful content, and and why do you think people get you know, gravitated towards that? Oh, thanks for that question. My LinkedIn popularity was um, quite a journey in a way. I'd say a big part of it was when I took my first data science role title, because I'd been doing data science since I was a freshman undergrad Mm -hmm. uh, here and there. Of course, we're doing multi-physics modeling too. But as soon as I had that first role title, I started getting a lot of direct mentoring requests or requests for help with job placement. And I just helped how I could. Well, I remember this one particular young man from Tunisia who said, sir, thank you. You're the only one that helps me. And I was like, what? I said, this wasn't hard. Why can't people take a little time to help these people? So that was the beginning. I, I just started making it my mission to just help how I could. And then um, some people really appreciated that. And they wrote glowing posts about me. And it was a little humbling, actually, because I thought I was just doing, you know, the bare minimum, what I could do. Well, before long, I was getting so many mentoring requests, I had to go to a call-in. And then that resulted in uh, the mentees that were helping me uh, form a community. Now, I already had a blog called Integrated Machine Learning and AI, so I just decided to name the community that. And because it was so 
appropriately named for what we were doing. We were integrating our knowledge and wisdom to help each other be more together. And that Slack work group's almost at 1,400 now. We, we've been taking a break lately because we wanted to update our systems because we grew so fast and we wanted to have a little bit better planning. But the other thing is, and this has a, I'm going to share some not so nice things, but they have a happy ending. <laughs> um, there were certain people I was connected to on LinkedIn and I just did not like the voice they had. They were uh, trollers, you know, condescending. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of them who I thought, this guy seems helpful, but I just can't handle the way he's communicating anymore. So I disconnected from him. And then, um, but then I reached out to people that I really admired, thanking them for their voice. One of them was Terry Singh. I still consider him a friend. Uh, Danny Ma. And I really loved Danny, and we hit it off. We became good friends, and he invited me into this group of people of like mind that were we call ourselves data evangelists, and we wanted to just keep helping the community together. And Danny brought me into that group, and then we all support one another's posts because we like each other's voices, and that, I think, had a huge impact too. But then over time... I just developed the voice I wanted to have. I I look for holes. I look for what I'm passionate about. And I look for an intersection of those two things. And I, I try to always have one guiding principle, share because I care. So there's something that I've used for the hundredth time and it helps me so much. And I think, I wonder if others would be helped by this. And Yes, they were. And so uh, over time, I've listened to the requests of the people that like my post. And so I've, I've just kept amplifying what I'm doing. And the goal is for me and one of my closest friends in our community, really he's my closest friend, uh, Guy Sinkari. <laughs> he works for Bayer in uh, Berlin, Germany. And using the principles that we're using, that we're teaching in the book we're writing, he was able to become data scientist of the year at fire just wow. using the principles we plan to put in our book. So it's just been an ongoing journey of humility. Okay. What can we get better at today? How can we grow today? And a lot of that growth is inspired by just helping others. When you help others, you forcing yourself to say it ever more clearly and think it ever more clearly. And that helps you grow a lot. Too. In fact, Pratik, I, I think it helps the, per, the giver grow more than the receiver, frankly. I think there's so much to unpack here. And uh, you know, something you said about share because I care, uh, something that is just a, a wonderful outlook uh, towards uh, building a, a community. And ongoing journey of humility is a, is a very nice way of looking at any any journey, any career journey, or anything that you set out to achieve. Uh, is, uh, that's when it's wonderful to uh, to see what you've built here. Now, I do want to discuss uh, the the concept of mentoring. You have been an amazing mentor in the data science community. You've helped a lot of people, and uh, in one of your blog posts, you mentioned that. You know, the, the backward way of thinking is I must first have things to do things 
to be a thing. But the the right way or the correct order of thinking is you must first be to do to have. Now, this is I, I just loved reading it. Now, could you explain this to the listeners and what does this mean in the context of uh, data science? I'm really glad you brought this one up. I think this is probably the most needed topic to talk about when you're trying to help people enter this very challenging field. And by the way, not only is it challenging to get into it, it's challenging to stay in it. And But thankfully, most of the people I work with are pretty nice. Not all the time, but, <laughs> you know, you always have challenges. But it's this spirit. Um, let's say you decide you want to be a data scientist. And I was helping a new dear friend, uh, Dare George. I don't think he'll mind me mentioning his name. And I was saying, okay, you're in a room full of data scientists and you're the least knowledgeable data scientist there. Does that mean you're not a data scientist? And he realized, no, it doesn't mean that. I was really just leading, a lot of leading questions. But does that mean it's great that you're there in that room? Because now you're seeing what level you want to rise to. You have it right there before you. Yeah, so you start taking notes. Oh, this guy knows this. He mentioned that. I This other guy that I respect mentioned that. These are things you can add to your ongoing learning plan. But just because you don't know as much as everyone else in the room doesn't mean you are not a data scientist. So be a data scientist. What would a data scientist do? Well, they would take notes from other data scientists that are more knowledgeable than them in certain areas. That's what you do when you, and I'm going to use bad English here on purpose, when you be a data scientist. <laughs> and by the way, the blog, let us it's funny how it's titled. It's being a data scientist, but it's capital B, capital E, yeah. little I-N-G data mm -hmm. scientist. So now by having that mentality, and oh, I should back up, pratik. When I was in engineering, even as a freshman, people would say, what do you do? I'm an engineer. Where do you work? I'm in school. We counted ourselves as engineers as, start as, as soon as we started our education. Well, if you've started your data science education, and let's say you've done your first toy problem with a toy data, data set in scikit-learn, you successfully loaded data, you performed linear regression on it, and you got good predictions, and you did a train-test split, I think it's fair for you to start saying, I'm a data scientist. Well, do you have a data scientist job? No, that doesn't matter. I am a data scientist, and I do data science. Now, you don't have to have a role title to be something. You decide if you're that person. You're the, you're the gatekeeper on that. Now, eventually, by doing enough work and building up a portfolio of work, which you will over time, if you're consistently being a data scientist and doing data science, make sure you have a record of your work to show, then eventually you will have the recognition and maybe even the role title as a data scientist. But just because you took a job as a waiter or a data engineer, which is a, a 
wonderful job to take, by the way, or something else that's not a data science role title, that does not mean you're not a data scientist. Don't ever let anyone else tell you you are or are not a data scientist. That's for you to say. Now, where, where your knowledge and skill level are at, that's always, you. hopefully, your skill level is always on an upward trajectory. Right. It's uh, it's actually, uh, we mentioned a very interesting concept here, portfolio of work. As any data scientist, initially you will educate yourself, you'll do some projects, and then you you set off on this journey. How do you think about portfolio construction? Meaning, let's say I'm five years into the job or like eight years into the job, I want to have a good portfolio I can be proud of. And which hopefully means when I show up to a job interview, my portfolio should speak louder than my interview skills, hopefully. So how do you think about it and how do you guide people on building a a good, attractive portfolio of work? This is a great question. And, um, you know, it depends on which company you're interviewing with, actually even which interviewers from that company you're interviewing with. But occasionally I've seen my portfolio make a huge difference in my consideration. Other times I think they're just too busy to go check out your portfolio. But I hope some interviewers are listening. (laughs) You'd be better served to go look at a person's portfolio than to think that your interview skills are so good that you can learn more about them by your questions. How do you weigh a person's career with a 30-minute to one-hour interview, how do you weigh a person's career and skill abilities from one take-home assignment? You can't. So I'm hoping more and more employers will take that portfolio of work more and more seriously. Now, I can get what their objections might be. And I, I could listen to the sum total of those objections and point at them very politely but very strongly and say, you should still be looking at that portfolio material. And But how do you construct it? I have my own ideas. I'm working toward improving that. But it's a constant, just like we refactor our good reusable code a lot to make it better and better. I think for me, it's constantly thinking of how do I refactor my public uh, strength, my my online presence. And Pratik, I got to tell you, I started late and mm-hmm. I was still able to catch up because before 2018, I was always able to just use my network and my resume and get a new job quickly. Boy, when 2018 hit and I found myself looking for a new role, I was shocked. And I had no online presence, so I started developing one. And it, it has made a world of difference in the speed at which I can be marketable and look at new roles. Yeah, I think that's been one of the very uh, important learnings the last, at least in the last five to eight years is your online presence it can make a big difference and uh, and many people either when they realize it it's they think it's too late or they 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 say oh I'm already you know so late well how can I do this uh, but I think it's a it's it's never too late never too late <laughs> never too late. Actually, that's a very good segue to, into my next question is, let's say 
you know, somebody has been a data scientist, a good data scientist, they work at a good company, it's been about, you know, 12 to 15 years into the job, and they didn't bother building any online presence. They just, you know, they just went to the job, did some good projects, successfully delivered, came back, zero online presence. And then when they realize it's too overwhelming. So what's the, what's your practical like step-by-step guideline on how to get started? I want to, I want to do something. I want to build my online presence, but I don't know where to start. So what's your guidelines for that? No, I, I love this question too, because I feel like I answer it a lot and it's related to our career too. Well, let's say, and I love to use this analogy, um, I've used it many times, but I, I researched to find what's the longest hikeable trail in the world. And it literally goes from the tip of South Africa all the way up through Africa, uh, up through Turkey, cuts through, I believe, Georgia, and then up into Russia, uh, maybe through Kazakhstan, but definitely through Russia, maybe Mongolia, and ends up at the eastern edge of Russia. Wow. Well, let's think that we're let, pretty, let's pretend you and I are going to hike this together. <laughs> well, now the first thing we got to do is research. Okay, what kind of gear do we need? Uh, we need a tent. We need sleeping bags or whatever. Uh, we need hiking shoes. We need a backpack. Um, we probably need a portable wa- water filtration system. We're going to need a little shovel for obvious reasons. Okay, go on and on. <laughs> and and then we start getting that. Get, we come up with a budget. We get our gear. We got to stay lean because we got to carry it. Well, that's the planning. That and then now we get the provision. But then you've done all this planning and provisioning. Then comes that day when it's all packed up. You've got your shoes on. You've got your clothes on. You've got your hat on. You've got your sunscreen. What do you got to do? You got to take a first step. And probably the endurance and the skill with which you walk the trail and deal with obstacles. If we haven't been hiking a lot for, we're going to suck. Forgive my <laughs> lingo. We're going to stink at it. Okay. And but hey, a month in, we're gonna be like pros. Two months in, we're gonna be like nothing phases us. Three months in, we're gonna look like we've been doing it for years. Well, I like this. Uh, I've heard this. You gotta embrace sucking at something to get good at it. In other words, you just gotta start walking. You've gotta start walking. So you can do all the planning you want, but you know what, Pratik? A month into the hike, we realized this was a really crappy purchase. We're going to have to go into a town and order something, wait for it to get there. Yeah, we're going to have times where we say, and I've done this. I started with a certain approach system. and Boy, this is inefficient. There's got to be a better way to do this. And I've refined the way I deliver material several times since I started. And I use, I'm not going to name it, but I use a really good blog hosting service. I just think I could do better now. And so I'm considering moving away from that system to a new system. And But it's all in the effort of how do I deliver material that's better for the end user. And even my co-author and I, we decided on a new system for the way we're going to write our books with and with other friends too. 
That's, that's amazing. It's uh, what you said about you have to embrace sucking at something in order to get better at it and hopefully even get great at it, right? It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, I it's wish a I was the originator of that, <laughs> but I can't claim to be the originator of that. And it's very well said. <laughs> right. In another blog post, uh, you mentioned that growth happens through cycles and uh, maintenance is integral to this process of cycling. Now, how should a machine learning professional think about it? What are the cycles I need to be aware of? And uh, how do I make sure that progress is happening? So I remember laughing a lot at Terry Singh's posts and he and I realizing we were kindred spirits because it was like, if you don't enjoy continual learning, you're in the wrong field. And he would, you know, really say, exactly, Tom. You know, I'd back up his post and then I'd write similar things. But it, it's the spirit of understanding you're going to feel addicted, but you also have to guard just extremely diligently against burnout. So it is real, like yesterday, I could tell... Oh, you need to t- you need to stay away from your computer screens. And that critique, there was something I really wanted to finish. I wanted to study. I want to work on it. But I could just tell, no, your brain is not there. You you will hurt yourself. It, it'd be like working out too much when you're already sore, you know. So I, I took the day off and I went over to my daughter's house with my son-in-law and a couple of my younger sons. We watched some stupid shows together and we ate more food than we should have. But I took a mental break. And um, I remember in graduate school, I was working on some really cutting edge modeling for hybrid electric vehicle power plants. Now they're common, they're ubiquitous. But I remember I would hit a wall and I was trying to think of a way to get around it in the modeling, in the, in the, in what I was writing and critique. This was at Texas A&M University, very hot. I, yeah. I don't like hot weather, but I would pick up my clipboard and a pen, and I'd just walk out of the office and start walking. And on average, 400 yards later, I was so inspired I had to sit down and start writing. But it was I made that change of environment that I like the way Dennis puts it. We're, we're really good buddies. And when we're mentoring people together... He was saying this in one of our sessions. Sometimes you have to mix up the way you're studying to get over the humps with your learning. Sometimes you have to mix up your environment to get over the humps with your challenges. And uh, But a lot of times, just like if you and I decided to be bodybuilders together, we'd have to remind each other, hey, remember, it's 80% nutrition. And then, you know, it's uh, I'm, I'm being silly here, but it's another 80% uh, recovery. And the last 20 percent is the actual weightlifting. And I, I actually witnessed a guy that completely broke down his body by overtraining as a triathlete. And he had to get around in a wheelchair during his recovery because he overtrained. So it's possible to do this with our minds. And we either go insane or burn ourselves out. So those periods of regeneration, of taking a break, they're huge growth periods. And we shouldn't ignore that. Right. It's actually a very <clears throat> nice way of looking at how you train your mind. And uh, absolutely agree on 
the recovery period, just like your body needs it, your mind needs it. And no matter what you're pursuing, it's very important that you train and then there's a nutrition component, there's a recovery component. All of them have to happen in order for growth to you know, growth is the outcome of this discipline um that's that's fantastic coming to the topic of the book you're writing now you're writing a book it's uh i think it's it's a wonderful thing um books have been a big part of my life i just love that books exist in this world now can you tell us a little bit about the book and uh what you are aiming to cover so a joke that Wright and i share with each other and sometimes share with others, they'll ask, when is the book coming out? And it's our standard line is, the book is going great. We're really proud of it. We're really proud of what it's going to become. As far as when it will come out, I don't know. Wright doesn't know. Only God knows. <laughs> but seriously, uh, we decided to um, self-publish. And there was, it, that was a huge decision for us. But we had to look at the history of what had happened and look at our unique approach. And we realized too, we intend to turn it into a series of books and we don't want them to cost much because we have dear friends all over the world that have different GDPs than the countries we live and work in. And we don't want them to feel like they can't afford our book. So by whatever means we possibly can, we're going to make sure everybody's paying a fair price, you know, according to their GDP. We think we have that worked out, but we also didn't want any encumbrances on the translations we decide to make. So the first book will be in English, but we hope to very rapidly create one in Arabic. And then um, we probably go to Spanish and European, other European languages ASAP. From talking to our friends in India, they said, we don't need a Hindi book. <laughs> <laughs> and I believe I need we will need to survey people in Asia, but uh, other than India. But we suspect that they will prefer it in English. But we we will do the research we need to do. And we have some great other self-publishing friends that have done quite well with self-publishing that we intend to uh, draw upon. They're they're good friends, and we will we'll need their help. But we had to recognize too. I have some amazing friends that we know will back the book that have three times, almost three times the followership that I do. So we're, we're counting on that too. The thought you're putting into it is, uh, is really nice to see. And I agree that making sure the book remains accessible to people around the world and, uh, and also making sure that it does the intended. It has the intended effect, which is spreading knowledge. Uh, it's just it's just nice to, nice to see that you are taking all of that into uh, consideration. May I let me add something real quick? We we plan to have plenty of blog posts and YouTube videos in the long run that will also represent the material in those books. But we have to recognize that there are some people that just prefer books. But we want to even transform the way we deliver material in books over time. Yeah, I think that's that's great to uh, great to hear. And uh, different people consume uh, in different ways, so I think it's a it's a great thing you're doing. Short form content, long form, which is books, uh, videos. I think it's uh, 
making the content accessible uh, across these different formats, I think it's definitely going to benefit a, a lot of people. Uh, we hope now, so. Yeah. Now, before we go into the last section, I, I was fascinated when I read that uh, you know your main language for the last 22 years has been Python. Now, I love Python. I'm a huge advocate. And uh, you know, today, that's pretty much the only language uh, I know. And I've, I've, Python, I've committed to Python. And I'm, I hope Python is committed to me as well. But um, what's your reason for choosing it as your main language? Because you did it way before it was cool. Like today, it's obvious why you choose Python. But <laughs> how did uh, you choose it? Oh, I'd love to share this one. Let me give you that coding history I started with. So punch cards in Fortran, Fortran, then really actually enjoyed creating functions or using them in Fortran, even as an undergrad. Even in senior design, I used Fortran and differential equations to predict the way our senior design project was going to perform. But then over the years, uh, I learned C on my own, was really glad I learned that, loved it. It, it was hard. But once you got the hang of using it the right way, and I was lucky to be trained the right way, uh, it was a dream. And then I learned C++, basic, somewhere in there. I, I never quite picked up Visual Basic, but uh, I, I had wanted to. Um, then I learned a very interesting language called AWK, uh, A-W-K. And it is short, it's kind of a, Kind of like Python in that it was based on C, but you could get a lot done with it. It was very simplified. And then also some of the higher languages like MATLAB, Simulink with MATLAB, Axel, which was a predecessor to MATLAB, still in existence, and LabVIEW, which a lot of instruments are connected for measurements to LabVIEW. Very interesting system. But then... Um, I was considering learning TCLTK, and I went to meet with these developers in San Francisco that were developing a boundary element analysis program that I really needed for my work at, uh, that I was doing in microelectromechanical systems at the time. And I said, hey, do you guys like this? And I, by the way, I just looked up to these guys so much for their what they were building and everything. And I said, do y'all like TCLTK? And I said, oh, it's okay, but... We really wished we'd have learned Python or used Python. And I went, really? And so I came home and I just dove into Python. I loaded it, started using it. And after using C quite successfully, I was shocked. I, I felt like a wild animal let out of a cage, you know, <laughs> running free. And I was like, what? You can do that with strings here? What? I can, oh, object-oriented programming with this, this way. Oh, this is amazing. Before, like even before my first half year of using it, I'd created my own poor man's supercomputer. <laughs> I would divide up my problem across four. Back then, Pentiums were the bomb. They were fast. They were, they were hard to get. But I gained remote access to some, a group of them in Oregon at another site and I'd divide up my solutions and then bring them back together on a central computer, figure out what I need to do next and divide out the next round, doing basically gradient descent with these complicated optimization problems. And I just was shocked. And then 
Visual Python's been around that same length of time. It's an amazing tool. And I couldn't believe the visualizations and the animations I could do with it right out of the box. And then one year I was teaching control system design at the university level to both graduates and undergraduates. And our MATLAB license wasn't going to be in on time. And I looked at the class and they were shocked and said, oh, it's no problem. We're going to use Python and Octave. (laughs) And at the end of the semester, I said, well, what did you like better, Python or MATLAB? They said, well, both. But what's nice is now we know if we get a control system design job, we can use a free tool and get the same level of work done. And they were thrilled that they knew both. That's a fascinating story. And uh, I love hearing Python, like stories about Python in the early days, because you know back then I grew up with C, like C was my first language. That's what I learned. And, and obviously I've shifted to Python, but it's, it's amazing to see how, uh, how different people discovered and embraced Python. Uh, it's been fantastic. All right. So we are going to go into the final section. So I, I have a series of five questions, like five rapid fire questions. And uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's dive in. They're fun. All right. First question, what's your favorite book? So I'm assuming it, people that know me know I'm a devout, Christ-loving Catholic. So other than the Bible, because <laughs> that's the given, um, it's so hard to say, really. Uh, would it be an entertaining novel? You know, would it be a significant book? But one thing that's near and dear to my heart, because I wasn't an avid reader when I was given this book, and it was a Dale Carnegie book. Dale Carnegie's a, a famous historic figure now, <laughs> historic figure now in our country, and he wrote How to Win Friends and Influence People. And the title's a little misleading. It, it's really about I think he could have named it how to be a considerate person that gets listened to. <laughs> you know, he, he could have wrote that for the title, but my dad gave it to me when I was a senior in high school and I was a real aqua jock, a competitive swimmer. And, and I was like, wow, thanks dad. But I thought, <laughs> you know what? I really respect my dad. And he gave me this for a good reason, obviously. So I, I started reading. I couldn't put it down was so good. And I still try to practice its principles to this day. And I, that one just is holds a special memory in my heart because my dad gave it to me. That I'm not being very rapid. I'm sorry. Oh, that's <laughs> that all good. A story, <laughs> that one had a story, though. <laughs> that's a nice nugget. Always love a good story. All right. Question number two. What tool do you end up using the most for your work? Python. Perfect. That I saw that coming. All right. Number three. Number three. What has been the biggest positive development in AI over the last you know, five years? Transformers, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. All right. Fourth question. What's the coolest thing about AI today? Reinforced learning. Wow. I love it. I <laughs> yeah. love it. Yeah. Uh, if I may, what um, what uh, about reinforcement learning that caught your attention? Is it the application or is it the number of people working on it? Oh, it's multifaceted. I actually give a talk on how I broke into it, how I learned it. 
I'm still learning it. I, I don't think I'll ever be done learning it because we, we have a lot of territory left to cover with reinforced learning. But first of all, as you could tell from my history, I have a love for multi-physics modeling and design. And once you understand multi-physical modeling, uh, it's very closely related to control system design. Well, when you look at the techniques we use for traditional control system design, you realize, oh, as I get more and more complicated systems, this is going to have some limits. Whereas you can apply reinforced learning to a system and without even having complete data, like you would need to adequately train a machine learning or a deep learning problem or even a transformer problem, you can make estimates from estimates and do some really good training because Dr. Sutton figured out this amazing thing where he integrated the brilliance from understanding animal learning behaviors with mathematics. And I mean old world, well, not super old world, Markov decision trees and stuff like that and Bellman's equations and brought these things together into a way to train machines based on estimates of estimates with just sensor data. To me, that's just so super cool. And it, it breaks those boundaries we were encountering in control system design. Right. All right. Final question. What industry could stand to benefit the most from AI today? The one that's not paying enough attention to it. <laughs> in other words i think there's a fear around ai sometimes and though that the causes of those fears are multifaceted but you needn't become a mathematician or an engineer or a stemite or any of those things to start appreciation excuse me to start appreciating ai and to start understanding it at a high level so if you're a business leader or you're in some area of organizational development, don't ignore AI. Don't ignore machine learning or reinforced learning. Just dive in there and learn it at a high level. You don't have to become an actual data scientist or AI specialist to benefit from it. Right. I think that's the, that covers a lot of um, sectors that I'm not yes. <laughs> paying enough attention to this. And and the best part is so much of uh, machine learning is getting production ready, meaning people are using it today. Uh, in, in, in real world, it's live. People are actively using it to make decisions. So I think the more uh, it gets production ready and commoditized, I think the more industries will, will embrace it and make it part of their core business. Um, you know, yeah. did you happen to watch Current Wars about the history of electricity development in the in the United States? It's a historical portrayal of the interactions between Edison, Westinghouse, and Tesla. It's a great movie. Oh, I, I'll definitely watch it. I haven't watched it yet. So for those listening, if you watch that movie and you think back to that time period, as that movie is to the electrical age is where we're at with the data age. You know, they'll look back at this time period and go, oh, those poor saps. I can't believe they had to struggle with things at that level, <laughs> like AC versus DC, you know? Well, 
<clears throat> they're going to look back and say, why were they arguing over Python versus R or over <laughs> data lakes and data warehouses? Oh my God, those poor guys. <laughs> oh, all the terminology was in such a horrible flux. Why couldn't they just get along, you know? And anyway, yeah, it's going to be funny. Yeah, They'll I think that's, us. It's, a, it's a great analogy to end the podcast. Tom, thank you so much for uh, for your insights. And uh, it's been such a wonderful and at times entertaining discussion on the various aspects of AI. Oh, that's great. Thank you. I was really enjoyed your questions. And I hope this podcast helps some people looking at our field or in our field. And and please don't don't allow yourself to feel imposter syndrome. Just understand we're all on a growth path. That was such an amazing conversation on creating useful content, framework on building communities, and how should data scientists think about building a career? How do you achieve growth? How do you make sure that you don't get burned out? Why is storytelling important? So many amazing topics. And uh, Tom is somebody who has really gone through all of these cycles and uh, achieved sustained growth, which is fantastic. Thanks to Tom for coming on to the show. And thanks to Dennis Rothman for making the connection. You can visit infinitemachinelearning.com to follow the podcast. I really appreciate you tuning in, and I look forward to bringing in more such amazing conversations.